The first scripture lesson comes from Galatians, the fifth chapter, the 22nd and 23rd verses. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Our gospel lesson comes from Matthew, the fourth chapter, the first 11 verses. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you, you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came to attend him. When Pastor Liz and I began discussions about a summer sermon series on the nine fruits of the Spirit identified in Galatians, I immediately asked for peace uh, because of my affection for the Beatitudes and the desperate need for peacemakers that was weighing heavily in my heart. In turn, I said to Liz, you could choose the ones you wanted and I would take whatever was left. To my initial chagrin, Liz said, you have self-control. My response was, no, I have very little self-control. Uh, I explained that I was named appropriately by my parents. Uh, I'm Peter, the one that sees Jesus on the water, jumps out of the boat, starts to walk on the water, looks down and says, uh, oops. When I was a college president, uh, the trustees described my leadership style as fire, ready, aim. Uh, two of the colleges presented me with replicas of the ever-ready bunny. I guess they thought I'd keep going and going and going. Clearly, being tasked with a sermon on self-control is Liz's and God's way to make me preach to my own shortcomings and sins. But I suspect I'm not the only one who needs to be preached at about self-control. The good news, isn't it wonderful that the gospel means good news? The good news is that there are several examples about self-control in the Bible, both how to do it and what happens when you don't. Uh, even more good news, in my research, I discovered one habit of self-control that will be relatively easy to master and will make your life and your faith and especially your relationships with your family, friends, church, and community stronger, more meaningful, and more godlike. 
So let's start with the biblical insights into self-control and begin with the biggest and the best example of self-control, our scripture passage from Matthew. Now, all of us have been tempted in our lifetime. However, I doubt any of us have been offered the chance to turn rocks and stones into our favorite meal. Better yet, I doubt any of us in our right mind has been promised if we jump off a tall building that the angels will gently guide us down to earth safely. And certainly in our wildest dreams, we have never been offered to rule the world only if we bow down and worship Satan. But Jesus, the epitome of self-control, the quintessential example of complete obedience to God, had answers for every one of those temptations. For the foodies in the crowd, he said, we cannot live by bread alone, but only by every word that comes from the mouth of God. For the high flyers in our midst, he said, silly Satan, don't try your parlor tricks on me. And for those of us who might acquiesce to the temptation to rule the world, he provided the most important advice, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now that's self-control par excellence. For the opposite of Jesus's self-control, if we look in the Bible, we need to only get to the third chapter because in Genesis, the serpent told Eve, you will certainly not die. For God knows that when you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Aha, the big temptation, ruling the world, being like God. And for the foodies, eating the fruit from the most luscious tree in all of creation. Alas, no self-control for Eve and Adam, and voila, the fall of humankind, banished from the idyllic garden of Eden forever. So lack of self-control was the first sin, followed by disobedience, leading to many, many other sins. You know, I find it intriguing that the first temptation of humankind, rule the world and be like God, was the last temptation of Christ. It's like Satan rolled out the big one, but saved it for Jesus to last. It's also intriguing to realize that the first sin indeed was lack of self-control and all other sins followed. Certainly makes self-control a very important fruit of the Spirit and maybe the reason that the Apostle Paul listed it last for emphasis. For Christians who have the fruits of love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, Self-control enables us to exercise those fruits effectively. Now that we've seen exemplary self-control and sinful lack of self-control, it's probably time to define the term. There are two definitions that are prominent. Self-control is first the ability to control oneself, in particular one's emotions or the expressions of them in one's behavior, especially in difficult situations. The second definition is restraint exercised over one's own impulses, actions, or desires. Hmm, restraint and control of impulses, emotions, actions, and desires, especially 
in difficult situations. Well, no wonder we all fall short on self-control. No wonder it is the fruit of the Spirit that's listed last. Fortunately, the ever-faithful, ever-helpful book of Proverbs offers several succinct statements about self-control and the impact of lack of self-control. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Fools give full vent to their rage, rage, but the wise bring calm in the end. Better a patient person than a warrior, one's self-control rather than one who takes a city. Fools show their annoyance at once, but the prudent overlook an insult. Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. Good advice about self-control is also prevalent in the New Testament. From James, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. From Titus, rather he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Again, from Titus, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, and in steadfastness. Well, my fellow gray-haired guys, some pretty good advice. Likewise, again from Titus, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Young guys, you can't escape the rebuke either. And from Timothy, likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or, or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And ladies, you're not off the hook either. And perhaps maybe the most valuable and encouraging remark comes from Hebrews. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. I believe the Lord's Prayer offers the most profound affirmation of self-control. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God knows, Jesus knows, we will be tempted, often, daily, many days, hourly. The world is a seductive place, and advances in technology only further enhance the temptations of sin. Jesus never promised those who follow him that life would be easy. Quite the contrary, being a Christian is demanding and difficult. We must start by admitting that we can't do it alone and must rely on God to lead us away from temptation. He alone can instill the self-control needed to resist sin. Showing even greater dependence on God and Jesus, we must acknowledge that they alone can deliver us from evil once we are tempted. When our self-control is insufficient, God's grace and love delivers us from evil over and over and over again. So we've defined Christian self-control 
we've drawn from the wisdom of Proverbs and the insights of the New Testament, we have a solid grasp of the power and importance of self-control as the last fruit of the Spirit. So now let's explore one specific habit of self-control. It's relatively easy to master and will make your life, your faith, and your relationship with family, friends, church, and community stronger, more fulfilling, more godlike. I kind of feel like the guy who accosted Dustin Hoffman in the movie The Graduate. I have just one word for you. I have just one word for you. That one word is going to change your life. In this case, the word isn't plastics. The word is cheerful. Yep, cheerful. It's the one habit of self-control that can transform your life and the lives of those you love. Ralph Waldo Emerson, our great New England philosopher, preacher, and writer, boldly proclaimed, power dwells in cheerfulness. Cheerfulness creates in the individual an increase of emotional energy and elevates one's mood and outlook. Cal Berkeley professor Timothy Hampton says, quote, the interior of the self is changed by the power of cheer. Now, we often associate cheerful with Paul in his letter to the Corinthians, the second one, chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. While we use this passage most of the time during stewardship campaigns, the actual message is much more than just financial. It is part of Paul's emphasis on building a sense of community in the new Christian church. For indeed, the verse that follows these two are, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, and having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. It's not just giving cheerfully, it's living cheerfully. Cheerfulness is the manifestation of a church community grounded in faith and united in love. In addition to the elevating of the mood the cheerful, for the cheerful person, cheerfulness is contagious. 18th century Scottish philosopher David Hume acknowledged that, quote, cheerfulness carries great merit with it and naturally conciliates the goodwill of mankind. Others enter into the same humor and catch the sentiment by contagion or natural sympathy. Reflect on the times when you've been with an authentically cheerful person. You and those around you seem to resonate with the positive and uplifting vibe that permeates a room that is filled with cheerfulness. Professor Hampton added, Cheerfulness can condition our mood, but it also inflects our social being. It is essential to a heavy society, healthy society. Whoever can control and harness it will possess a rare resource for shaping their emotional life and those of their fellows. Ironically, while cheerfulness might be appear to be a force that is uncontrollable, in reality we can and should control and harness the power 
of cheerfulness. Cheerfulness and self-control are not, not only can coexist, they are complementary, even symbiotic. Cheerfulness becomes the practical application of self-control. But that application, the capacity to be cheerful, differs in different people. Some are more pessimistic, negative, or analytical. Others are more optimistic, upbeat, and spontaneous. It's, it's kind of in our DNA. For, for those who are more subdued, they must exercise self-control that focuses on looking for the best in people and in events, being more accepting of people's shortcomings, and practicing what Coleridge called the willing suspension of disbelief. For the more gregarious, they must exercise self-control in being authentic in their cheerfulness, being grounded in Christian love so that their cheerfulness is sincere and empathic. And for the majority of people between the extremes of pessimism and unbridled optimism, we must exercise self-control by willing ourselves to be more cheerful and to resonate with those who are cheerful. Like Paul's message to the Corinthians, we must affirm that cheerfulness is the manifestation of a church community grounded in faith and united in love. A second application of self-control through cheerfulness is the recognizing that both are difficult. We are incapable of exercising self-control or cheerfulness without God and without a relationship with Jesus. Temptations and negativity, the essence of sin, are too powerful to combat alone. Only when we surrender to Christ can we overcome the temptation of evil. Each time we pray the Lord's Prayer, may we indeed ask God to grant us the self-control to lead us not into temptation and the grace to deliver us from evil. The third and final application of self-control through cheerfulness is the power to choose. When God created the universe, he bestowed on humankind the freedom to decide to live as his children in light and love or to live in darkness captive in a world of temptation and sin. Choose God. Choose to deepen your relationship with Christ. Choose to live out the gospel. Choose to become the mission of First Presby. We exist to glorify God by deepening our relationship with Jesus, living out the gospel, and sharing his love with all. My message this morning is really pretty straightforward. Use your God-given power to choose, and choose cheerful self-control. Let us pray. Lord, we live in a world of temptation and sin, but thank God we have been given the power to choose how we live. Help us to choose the fruits of love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness. Then give us the wisdom and courage to choose self-control to enable us to exercise the other fruits effectively. Lord, we know self-control is difficult to master and even more demanding to sustain.
But when we put our trust and our life in you, we not only choose light and love, we do so with cheerful self-control. Finally, may our cheerful self-control elevate our mood and outlook, be contagious and inspire others, and be the foundation for First Presby and all churches as they create a sense of community grounded in faith and united in love. Amen. <laughs>